2: Hub and spoke, audio collective. The trouble all started with Daniel Sickles, which was a distressingly common place for trouble to start in 19th century America. Daniel, or Dan, or Devil Dan, as he was nicknamed, first attracted public scrutiny in 1852 when he married Teresa Bagioli. At the time, Sickles was a young New York State Assemblyman, just out of law school, only 32. And Teresa was... a 15-year-old girl. Teresa was the granddaughter of opera librettist Lorenzo da Ponte, best known for writing the librettos to Mozart's Marriage of Figaro and Don Giovanni, among others, DePonte had been living in America and teaching at New York University when he met a young Dan Sickles. He was impressed by the teenager, and not only got him admitted to NYU, but asked him to move into his house. There, Sickles met Teresa Baglioli, but she was only an infant at the time, so Dan seduced her mother. Then, 14 years later, he seduced and married Teresa. Both families disapproved of their elopement, as you might have guessed, but not just for the obvious reasons. Because, oh right, no, never mind what I said. Sickles first attracted public scrutiny in 1847 when he was censured by the New York Assembly for bringing his courtesan, Fanny White, to breakfast in Albany which was shortly before they were arrested for dressing Fanny as a man so that they could go out at night together. Amazingly, each and every part of that was a crime in 1847 New York. An anonymous history of Fanny White, published in 1860, claimed she was so upset upon hearing about Sickles' marriage that she went to his hotel and beat him with a riding crop. Whoo, Fanny! In 1853, he went to London, to serve as secretary to the UK ambassador and future president, James Buchanan. Instead of bringing Teresa and their daughter Laura along, he took Fanny. There, the two lived as a couple, attending diplomatic events and nights at the theater. When Fanny insisted she wanted to meet Queen Victoria, Sickles arranged it, introducing her as Miss Bennett, after James Gordon Bennett, editor of the New York Herald, who had written critically of Sickles. Yet... Introducing a prostitute to the literal Queen of England under a false name chosen to disparage a member of the free press is nothing compared to Sickles' other troubles. At the same time he was carrying on with Fanny White, Teresa had a lover of her own, Philip Barton Key, the U.S. Attorney for Washington, D.C., and son of star-spangled banner scrivener Francis Scott Key. Over their five years of marriage, The capital P.H. Philandering Sickles had repeatedly accused Teresa of stepping out on him, and each time she had denied it. But, on February 24, 1859, Dan received an anonymous letter in which the author said he had seen Teresa leaving a string out her window as a sign that she was alone, and letting key inside. Then, the two of them could be seen in the front window of Sickles' library, in a state of, well, the letter closed... I leave the rest to you to imagine. Imagine he did. Dan confronted Teresa, who admitted the affair. He then had her write out a confession. Three days later, Sickles spotted Key sitting on a bench outside his home on Lafayette Park, presumably waiting to see Teresa's string from the window. Devil Dan marched out the front door towards Key, pulled out a pistol, shot twice, and then, over his victim's prone body, yelled, Key, you scoundrel, you have dishonored my home, you must die. And, in full view of the White House, proceeded to make good on the imperative, shooting him once more, in the chest, at point-blank range, in public, on a sunny Sunday afternoon. At the murder trial... Dan Sickles was defended by Edwin Stanton, who would go on to be Secretary of War for Abraham Lincoln and wage a high-stakes, cannons-loaded impeachment crusade against President Andrew Johnson. Stanton orchestrated for Sickles a brand-new defense never tried in the United States before, not guilty by reason of temporary insanity. So jostled by the discovery of his wife's infidelities, Sickles' sense of reason and morality abandoned him for the three days necessary to conduct the murder, and then returned from vacation in time to leave Sickles appropriately penitent to the court. He was acquitted. The Washington Examiner called him a hero for saving his young wife from his victim's libidinous clutches. Public sentiment only began to turn against him when he forgave Teresa and reconciled with her. Yeah, you heard me. You starting to get a flavor for this, dude? Well, hold on, because there's so much more. After the Confederates seceded and fired on Fort Sumter, Sickles took it upon himself to raise an army in New York, despite a yawning lack of authority to do so. When the governor and the appropriate union general confronted him and told him to disband his militia, Sickles instead took the matter all the way to the top. President Abraham Lincoln, whose wife, Mary Todd, was in the habit of throwing seances with Teresa Ballioli Sickles. Sickles told everybody that he had 10,000 standing men for the union cause. That was a lie, but no matter. And eventually Lincoln felt obliged to name him a general after all, and despite a total lack of experience. Probably a mistake, Abe. On July 2nd, 1863, the second day of the Battle of Gettysburg, Sickles defied orders from Major General George Meade and marched his troops a mile ahead of the Union front line. There, a unit of Confederate troops commanded by Major General Lafayette McLaws absolutely ravaged Sickles' men, putting the division out of the battle. Sickles himself lost his leg to cannon fire. For disobeying orders, getting his men obliterated, and risking the success of the most pivotal battle of the war, Sickles' punishment was the Medal of Honor. He lobbied for it tirelessly and spent years shit-talking General Meade to secure it. What else? What else? Oh! After the war, he served as minister to Spain between 1869 and 1874, where he had a secret sexual dalliance with Queen Isabella II, so that's something. He embezzled huge sums from both the Erie Railroad and the New York Monuments Commissions. He, in turn, was bamboozled out of a fortune himself by Princess Elizabeth Vilma Loaf Parlegi, a suspicious portraitist to whom he gifted a lion cub in 1911. It's a long story. Anyway, like I was saying, the trouble all started with Daniel Sickles. I'm not talking about the affairs or the embezzlements or the war blunders or even the murder. I'm talking about the big trouble. I'm talking about November 7th, 1876, when Daniel Sickles started a scandal that rocked the country and changed the face of American history forever. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. We are just about a month out from the 2020 presidential election between Joseph R. Biden and the end of the republic. I'm kidding. No, I'm not. Jesus, I'm stressed out. Are you stressed out? I never imagined that in my lifetime, I'd see America at the brink of such gaping disaster. Don't get me wrong. I've pictured plenty of other American disasters, a lot of them. But this particular brand of disaster where it feels like there's a sliver of safe travel to navigate through with rocks and hard places on either side, well it's surprising and stressful so I thought, what better way to round the edges off our collective anxiety than to take a look back at the most disastrous election in American history so far Knockwood, fingers crossed, please vote today's episode 1876 Before we return to the philandering, embezzling, murdering, militia-raising devil Dan Sickles, we've got to set the table for the presidential election of 1876, which requires us to go all the way back to 1865, the end of the Civil War. When the South finally surrendered, the country was far from saved. In fact, arguably, the taller task was still ahead. With the nation reunified and slavery abolished, there were two very large and fundamentally incommensurable groups of people to bring into the American experiment. The four million newly freed slaves and the five million traders who had taken up arms to continue owning them. Sounds pretty tough, right? Well, luckily the country had a man who was up for the task. Less luckily, he was shot in the head at Ford's Theater on April 15, 1865, just six days after Robert E. Lee had surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox. Peaceably uniting the country and transforming the South into a racially integrated society might have been too heavy a pull even for Honest Abe. Who knows? But it was surely too much for his vice president, the drunken, embittered racist Andrew Johnson. You really couldn't have chosen a worse man for the job. Johnson's take on Reconstruction was almost incoherent. He didn't favor voting rights for blacks, both because he thought states should be free to administer elections as they pleased, and because, as I said, racist. But he didn't like white Southerners much either. Johnson had hoped to be the presidential nominee against Lincoln back in 1860, and felt betrayed by the rich landowning Southerners who failed to support him. He also said the question of how to readmit the Confederate states was moot, since he believed they had no right to secede in the first place. So Johnson appointed provisional governors to the South with a mandate to form new governments that looked pretty much like the ones they replaced. Which is to say, they were all white, mostly Democrat, and largely Confederate. These new state governments quickly began passing Black Codes, which were basically the re-establishment of slavery under the guise of protectorate capitalism. The North didn't care for any of that. And before we go idolizing the abolitionist union, let's clarify what and why they didn't care for. Put simply, they didn't like that the post-war South was beginning to look so much like the pre-war South. They thought the Confederates needed to be punished, and only brought back into the country pleading on their hands and knees once their lesson was learned. The North also supported ending slavery, pretty strongly by the time the war ended, and declared it an imperative that the lives and rights of blacks be improved. But this was, I think it's fair to say, a secondary concern. In northern states where blacks had been free for decades, most of them were still not allowed to vote, and had plenty other tribulations foisted upon them. The North was fine with that sort of inequity continuing in the South. They even thought it would be preferable to not push the voting issue, because maybe it would speed along the process of getting white Southerners to properly apologize. But there was another part of Johnson's Reconstruction Plan that really stuck in the craw of Northerners, and it was a very progressive complaint. On January 16, 1865, General William Tecumseh Sherman had issued Special Field Order No. 15. As the Union armies advanced in the South, they faced a problem. With slavery officially ended and southern slave owners on the run from Sherman's advance, the Union armies continually stumbled upon abandoned farms and the formerly enslaved populations who worked them. The people needed food and work and shelter. So, Sherman, along with abolitionist Senator Charles Sumner, House Rep Thaddeus Stevens, and Lincoln's Secretary of War Edwin M. Stanton, who was also Devil Dan Sickles' lawyer in the murder trial, you'll recall, concocted Special Field Order No. 15 as a remedy. The Union Army would reallocate the 400,000 acres seized from Southern slavers to their former slaves. In a delicious bit of ironic justice that would make King Solomon blush, the people whom the aristocracy had owned as property would now own their property. The land was to be divided into 40-acre plots, which would be given out almost as recompense to the new freedmen. Sometimes, the army would also provide mules. Forty acres and a mule was the kind of project northern Republicans could get down with. It not only provided an economic lifeline to black Southerners, perhaps ensuring their freedom would be literal instead of just theoretical, but it also went a long way towards punishing the traitors who had fought and killed American soldiers. By July, President Johnson had rescinded the order and was instructing federal troops to return the lands and properties back to former Confederates. Then, in December of 1865, the newly elected U.S. Congress convened. The South's representatives were made up almost entirely of former and in many cases unrepentant Confederates. Georgia's white government had chosen Alexander Stevens, the former vice president of the Confederacy under Jefferson Davis, to serve as senator. No fucking way, said the Republicans. They refused to seat the Southerners and instead began formulating their own Reconstruction legislation. Andrew Johnson had started out his administration with very few friends, but within half a year, he was losing even the few he had left. On February 22, 1866, he gave an extemporaneous speech that was meant to be in honor of George Washington's birthday. Instead, he ranted for an hour about his many petty grievances and enemies. Hey, that sounds familiar. In a particularly unhinged bit of paranoia, he told the crowd that Representative Stevens, Senator Sumner, and Attorney Wendell Phillips were plotting to kill him The Republican legislature turned up the heat, taking Reconstruction increasingly into their own hands. They passed the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which established birthright citizenship and legal equality for all Americans regardless of race. Johnson vetoed it. So Congress reconvened and passed it again, with a two-thirds majority, overriding the presidential veto for the first time in American history. They drafted the 14th Amendment, which codified equality and citizenship. And since there were no Southern Democrats seated in Congress, they passed it and it moved along to the states. The legislative war between Republicans and Johnson escalated over and over. The Republicans passed the First Reconstruction Act and Johnson vetoed it. So they overrode him again. Then they passed the Ten Year of Office Act, which said that the president couldn't fire cabinet members without Senate approval. Johnson, of course, vetoed it and Congress again overrode him. It was a bit of a trap. Johnson had been feuding with his Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, since he ascended to office, and Stanton had successfully chipped away at his power to oversee Reconstruction with the passage of the Reconstruction Act, which put federal troops in the South under the Secretary's command, not the President's. Johnson couldn't fire Stanton because of the Tenure of Office Act, but he could suspend him while Congress was in recess. He put Ulysses S. Grant in his place and ordered Grant to relieve two generals involved in Reconstruction who he felt had been too loyal to Congress. Their names were Philip Sheridan and, oh, can you guess it? Devil Dan Sickles. But that's not what we're here for either. Congress again was pissed. They reinstated Stanton as soon as they came back. So Johnson fired him for real this time. Having violated the Tenure of Office Act, Congress impeached him. He managed to overcome the charges, but only through near bribery and a promise to several lawmakers that he would cede all responsibility for Reconstruction to the Republicans. The Civil Rights Act divided the South into five districts to be overseen by the federal government and forcing the southern states to ratify the 14th Amendment. In 1868, Union General Ulysses S. Grant beat Johnson to become the 18th President of the United States, and a new age of radical Reconstruction truly began. The 15th Amendment guaranteed the right to vote, regardless of race. Grant formed the Department of Justice and the Civil Service Commission. He went to war with the Ku Klux Klan. But maybe most importantly, he oversaw the deployment of a strong federal presence in the South to protect the lives, liberty, and property of the freedmen, who, now possessing the right to vote for a brief shining moment, began electing black legislators and executives at every level of government. In total, there were around 2,000 elected black officials during the eight-year period of radical Reconstruction. The lack of widespread land owned by blacks, a consequence of Andrew Johnson, you'll recall, stymied efforts at improving their fortunes to some degree, but really, looked at objectively, the period of Reconstruction really did accomplish a whole lot. But looked at objectively is one hell of a caveat, especially when racism abounds. All three of these progressive institutions, black legislators, Republican governments, and the Grant administration, all quickly became seen as hopelessly corrupt. And that's not to say that there wasn't something to those charges. Hell, four of Grant's cabinet members resigned under scandal. But that kind of corruption wasn't limited or especially concentrated among either white or black Republicans. That was just 19th century government. The actual primary failings of Reconstruction were twofold. One, Reconstruction was expensive. It not only cost money in troop deployments, but also in infrastructure improvements. Building new buildings, repairing old ones, roads, and the like. In the beginning of Reconstruction, that wasn't too much of an issue, although plenty grumbled about high taxes. The post-war economy was fairly robust, and there was work to be done and workers to do it. Especially the building of railroads, which between 1868 and 1873 totally preoccupied the American marketplace, laying down 30,000 miles of new track. When the Transcontinental Railroad was completed in 1869, investors turned in masse to a new locomotive project, the Northern Pacific Railway. But the banks couldn't move bonds for the project, and the whole American economy collapsed in the Panic of 1873. With unemployment quickly skyrocketing, state and federal revenues collapsed, leading to hiking taxes on a population that was less and less able to pay. Northern Republicans lost the stomach to keep fighting the Klan and the Southern Democrats in the face of near-national insolvency. At the same time, these same economic troubles were seized upon by said Ku Klux Klan and Southern Democrats in order to emphasize their line that Reconstruction was just a bunch of corrupt turncoats, greedy carpetbaggers, and shiftless freedmen. The Democrats, calling themselves Redeemers, began to reestablish power in the South. And with every inch they gained, they envisioned new ways to disenfranchise free blacks. Poll taxes, literacy tests, and a whole lot of straight-up armed militias, violence, and lynchings. Up to and including the Colfax Massacre of 1873, where Klan members and other white supremacists killed 150 black men, women, and children in Colfax, Louisiana. So. The Panic of 1873 emboldened Southern conservative Democrats to reimpose white supremacy at the same moment that liberal Republicans' stomachs were failing them. Nowhere was this seen as clearly as in Mississippi, where in 1875, the Democrats instituted the aptly named Mississippi Plan, an organized insurgency bent on removing Republicans from office through threats, intimidation, and violence. They first attacked and pressured white liberals, so-called scallywags, in order to convince them to change parties or flee the state. Then they began in on the freedmen, denying them wages, having them arrested for violations of black codes, and showing up in rifle clubs to Republican political assemblies and murdering black men in full public view. The governor called on President Grant to send troops to bring the white supremacists under heel, but Grant refused. Federal action was now unpopular in the North, and Grant feared that if he threw in against Mississippi, the Democrats would take Ohio. So, the Mississippi plan succeeded, totally ousting Republicans from government and removing federal oversight from the state. By 1876, only three states, Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina, still had federal troops on the ground protecting black people and their votes. Reconstruction was on the ropes and with it the long-put-off problem of liberty and justice for all in the United States. It all came down to the presidential election. Ulysses S. Grant had already served two terms in 1876, as many as anybody else had, but he was contemplating a third, up until the House of Representatives introduced a non-binding resolution which said that the two-term tradition established by George Washington was a bulwark against dictatorship. It passed 233 to 18, and Grant took the hint. The Republican nomination was high up in the air, with a large field of competitors including Speaker of the House James G. Blaine, former Indiana Governor Oliver P. Morton, Solicitor General Benjamin Helms Bristow, Major General John Frederick Hartrift, famous for reading the death warrant for the conspirators in Lincoln's assassination, and Postmaster General Marshall Jewell. But... After seven ballots, it was Rutherford B. Hayes who came out on top. Hayes was born and raised in Ohio. His father died ten weeks before he was born, leaving his mother to raise him and his sister Fanny. Rutherford, how do you shorten Rutherford? Ruth? Ford? Er? Forget it. Hayes initially went into the seminary, aimed at becoming a Methodist minister in Norfolk, Ohio but soon made a series of transfers before landing at Kenyon College and then Harvard in 1843, where he studied law. Aside from a possible case of tuberculosis that kept him moving around for a few years in search of healing weather, Hay's young professional life wasn't especially interesting. In 1850, he settled down in Cincinnati, where he opened a law office with a partner. There he met Lucy Webb, whom he married in 1852 and with whom he had three children. His legal practice turned to criminal defense law, which brought him a very particular kind of case. Cincinnati was just across the Mason-Dixon line, and so it was a common place for escaped slaves to cross into freedom. But Cincinnati was a conservative city, by northern standards, still is, and frequently apprehended those escaped slaves and tried them under the Fugitive Slave Act, which would then send them back south. Hayes defended these escaped slaves against such prosecution. So... Good on him there. In 1858, he was named city solicitor for Cincinnati, but then was kicked out in 1860 when conservative Ohio voters, sympathetic to secession, rejected most of the state's elected Republicans, including Hayes. When the Civil War began, Hayes volunteered for the Union and joined up as a major in the 23rd Regiment of the Ohio Volunteer Infantry. While with the 23rd, he fought in the Battle of Carnifex Ferry and joined the Army of the Potomac to fight off Robert E. Lee at the Battle of South Mountain, where Hayes was shot in the arm, tied off the wound, and continued the fight. In 1864, his regiment joined the Army of the Shenandoah, where he helped capture Lexington, Berryville, Fishers Hill, and Cedar Creek, where he was injured again, thrown from his horse, and again kept fighting. During this time, Ohio Republicans nominated him for the House race in Ohio's 2nd District and asked him to return home to Cincinnati to campaign. Hayes responded, Any officer fit for duty who at this crisis would abandon his post to electioneer for a seat in Congress ought to be scalped. He was elected in absentia and became one of the dogged congressional Republicans who acted as a thorn in the side for President Johnson. In 1867, he ran against Algin Thurman for the Ohio governorship. The main issue of the race was an amendment to the state constitution to give voting rights to black men. Thurman ran a fear-mongering, race-baiting campaign. Hayes came out on top, but the amendment failed. Luckily, the 15th Amendment was on its way to override that. After two terms, a break and another term as Ohio governor, the state delegation forwarded his name for the presidential race, which, as discussed... He succeeded in sealing on the seventh ballot. In contrast, his Democratic competitor was chosen unanimously on the second ballot. Samuel Jones Tilden was the heir to a vast family fortune built out of a patent medicine called Tilden's Extract. Most patent medicines were somewhere between placebo and poison, but Tilden's Extract must have been medically active since it was also taken recreationally. It was, after all, Nothing more than concentrated marijuana extract flavored with licorice. Sammy J. Tilden, as his friends called him, and by his friends I mean me, studied law at NYU and practiced as a corporate lawyer while ingratiating himself with Tammany Hall and the New York Democrats. He was appointed as the city's legal counsel in 1843 and then ran for and won a seat at the New York State Assembly alongside Devil Dan Sickles. Don't forget about him. After the Civil War, Tilden turned against the corrupt Tammany Hall Democrats and their leader, the stupefyingly corrupt Boss Tweed, leading a campaign against him in 1871 that swept anti-corruption Democrats into New York office and got Tweed indicted on 120 counts. For beating and then imprisoning Boss Tweed, New York made Tilden governor in 1874, where he continued to sharpen his reputation as an anti-corruption crusader, which was only partly a dog whistle for ending black governance in the South. Only partly, folks. Take what you can get. So there you have it. Tilden versus Hayes. Anti-corruption versus anti-Confederate. The battle lines for 1876, the worst election in American history.
0: So far. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too?
1: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money
2: Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It was never going to be anything like a fair contest. While accusations of corruption by Republicans were partly coded racial attacks, there really was quite a lot of corruption in the party, and there'd be plenty in the race, too. That Republican interference, though, was nothing compared to the Southern Democrats, who had armies of white supremacists at nearly every polling place south of the Mason-Dixon, keeping Southern Black and white Republicans alike from exercising the franchise. Republicans had another deficit to overcome. Nobody outside of Ohio knew who Rutherford B. Hayes was. And at the time, presidential candidates didn't campaign on their own behalf leaving Hayes at the mercy of his surrogates to try to define him for the polity while he waited at home in the governor's mansion. Unfortunately for him, the Democrats were already on the case, tarring Hayes as an inoffensive empty suit, a puppet through which corrupt and radical liberals would do their bidding. Hey, that also sounds somewhat familiar. Hayes' people countered that Tilden and the Democrats were racists, which Tilden's people took umbrage with. Tilden and most Northern Democrats, including Devil Dan Sickles, remember Devil Dan Sickles, had sided with the Union. Sure, Republicans countered, not every Democrat was a rebel, but every rebel was a Democrat. Not to mention, you know, the white supremacist militias that were rigging the election through violence and intimidation throughout the South. Hayes' prospects looked dim. On the night of the election, November 7th, 1876, as the returns came in, things only got bleaker for the Republicans. Tilden was winning in the swing states of Connecticut, Indiana, New Jersey, and New York. By the end of the night, Tilden had 184 electoral votes to Hayes' 165. And that was before some of the South was called, which Hayes' team expected to go entirely for Tilden, owing to the white supremacist militias at polling places. Have I mentioned that there were white supremacist militias at southern polling places? I have? Well, it's worth mentioning again. There were white supremacist militias at southern polling places. Zachary Chandler, the former mayor of Detroit and chairman of the Republican Party, figured that once the South was counted, Tilden's lead would increase to 203 electoral votes. So, rather than sit around the telegraph waiting for the slaughter, he started drinking at his desk until he passed out underneath it. Hayes' campaign headquarters emptied out in a defeated shuffle. Rutherford B. Hayes resigned himself to defeat, and his wife Lucy consoled him, saying that they wouldn't have liked living in Washington anyway. The two went to bed early. By midnight, nearly every Republican in the country was either drunk or asleep, knowing that they had been roundly beaten and that the era of Republican leadership in the United States was over. Nearly every Republican, aside from Devil Dan Sickles. Sickles had figured the race was over before it began, so he spent the evening at the theater, then he had a late night dinner and drinks before taking a long walk home through the streets of New York. On his way, he passed by the Republican National Committee headquarters and decided to stop in to see how things were going. Inside, he found an empty husk of a room, with only the inebriated Chandler blacked out beyond resuscitation. So, Sickles took his seat and glanced over the vote tallies. Huh, he must have said to himself as he saw what nobody else in the campaign had seen. Away for Hayes to win. The Constant is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Too often, when I'm looking for research, the information is unreliable, and when it's not unreliable, it's not in-depth, and when it's in-depth, it's not accessible. The great thing about The Great Courses Plus is that it's all of that and more. Start your free trial today to see for yourself. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash the constant. They've got stuff on classics like history, literature, and science to hobbies and leisure activities like chess, playing guitar, or mechanics. This week, I'm recommending The Great Trials of World History. It goes from The Apology of Socrates, through The Conspiracy to Assassinate Lincoln, Oscar Wilde's Indecency Trials, The Scopes Monkey Case, all the way through O.J. Simpson's Murder Rap. Oh, every lecture is like a decadent, historical candy to unwrap. This streaming service offers engaging lectures about anything and everything, all from the experts themselves. And with the Great Courses Plus app, you can watch anywhere from any device. Stream to your internet-connected TV in the living room, and then toggle over to your phone while cooking dinner. Now's the perfect time to sign up for The Great Courses Plus, and my listeners can check out any course or lecture for free today. That's free access to their entire library. So don't wait any longer. Sign up today. What are you doing? You're on your phone. Sign up today using my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash the constant. One more time. That's thegreatcoursesplus, P-L-U-S dot the constant. And by BetterHelp. If something is preventing you from achieving your goals or interfering with your happiness, BetterHelp online counseling is there for you. They'll assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist in a safe and private online environment in under 24 hours from signing up. It's not self-help, it's professional counseling provided at your own pace. Send messages to your counselor anytime and get timely, thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions all without having to leave your home. BetterHelp is committed to offering great therapeutic care at an affordable price. It's cheaper than traditional counseling with financial aid available, and you can change counselors anytime you want. What's more, it's available worldwide with counselors specializing in areas that might not be available to you locally, like self-esteem, LGBT matters, stress, trauma, anxiety, or depression. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is currently recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states, and there's a reason why. Their service is convenient, professional, and affordable. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P pcom slash the constant. Tilden 184, Hayes 165. That was the bad news. But the good news was that Colorado had been granted statehood in July. All three of their electoral votes were given to Hayes, which didn't really move the needle. But because there were three more electoral votes in play, the winner of the election needed a minimum of 185 votes. One more than Tilden had. What Dan Sickles realized was that if the West Coast went for Hayes, as it was likely to, then the race was still in play. All that was necessary for a Republican victory was for Hayes to hold the southern states where Reconstruction was still ongoing, where federal troops still, to some degree, protected black voters, and Republicans still had enough state office holders to contest Democratic shenanigans. If Hayes won in South Carolina, Florida, Louisiana, and Oregon, he'd be up to 185, and beat Tilden after all. On his own, with neither the knowledge or consent of the party or candidate, Dan Sickles sent off a bevy of telegrams to state Republican leaders, giving them orders to follow his quickly fomenting plan. The telegram read, With your state sure for Hayes, he is elected. Hold your state. Then, he sent off another to John C. Reed, managing editor of the New York Times, telling him that Hayes was still in the mix and Republicans were on track to win. Finally, having just put into motion a constitutional crisis unlike any scene since the Civil War, the murderous, thieving, adulterous Dan Sickles went home and slept like a baby. On the morning of November 8th, nearly every newspaper in the country led with the story of Tilden's victory. Except for the New York Times, whose morning headline read, A Doubtful Election. Early in the morning, Reed and another newspaper publisher, William Chandler, ran to Republican headquarters, where they slapped the hungover Zachary Chandler, no relation, into waking. They sent off further telegrams to the states in question, telling Republicans to do what they needed to contest any fraud from Democrats and secure the popular vote. Not far away, The Democrats were telegraphing basically the same info on Tilden's behalf. Meanwhile, Rutherford B. Hayes was rising with the morning in Columbus, Ohio, laxadaisical in his defeat. He eored off to his office, where he wrote a series of letters humdrumly describing the bright side of having lost the presidency. He only learned that his defeatism was premature when word of the afternoon edition of New York Times reached him later in the day. The paper of record thought that he was ahead. It all came down to South Carolina, Florida, Louisiana, and Oregon. In the three southern states, Democrats had tried to disenfranchise black voters and white liberals, but the tallies were subject to review by state election review boards that were Republican-controlled. On the dashed-off late-night orders of Dan Sickles and the further strategizing of Chandler and other Republican leaders, those in charge of the review boards were urged to throw out votes anywhere they suspected there had been fraud or intimidation. Hayes was having mixed feelings all around. He believed, probably rightly, that if the South had conducted their elections fairly, he'd have won in a landslide. But they hadn't, and so the question was whether he had possibly won the three least unfairly conducted Southern elections. In the first vote tallies, Hayes appeared to carry South Carolina by somewhere short of 1,000 votes, although somehow the total number of votes added up to 101% of the state's eligible population. In Florida, on the other hand, he was losing by around 100. And in Louisiana, his prospects were much worse. Tilden was up 6,300. Meanwhile, in Oregon, Democrats were playing a different game. Hayes had conclusively carried the Beaver State, entitling him to the state's four electoral votes, but one of the Republican electors was John W. Watts, who was also a postmaster. The law was that electors couldn't hold federal office, but Watts didn't think that would be a problem as he quit the post office when he was sworn in as an elector. This was a fairly common practice at the time, but Oregon had a Democratic governor. Lafayette Grover and DNC chairman Abram Hewitt urged him to disqualify Watts and swap in a Democratic elector instead. To win, Hayes needed not just to undo Tilden's edge in Louisiana and Florida, but also to get back the faithless elector in Oregon in charge of the effort in florida was william chandler along with edward f Noyes of the oneida silverware company slash polygamous utopian cult oh did you not know that the oneida silverware company was also a polygamous utopian cult well i'll let you google that for yourselves arriving in florida chandler and Noyes discovered an absolute sham of an election Ballot boxes had been stuffed, votes had been duplicated, and Democrats had printed up party ballots festooned with Republican iconography, like the face of Abraham Lincoln, and given them out to illiterate Republicans to trick them into voting the other way. They began throwing out these manipulated ballots in mass as fraudulent, which was itself a bit of a fraud. Meanwhile, in Louisiana, things were even messier. The head of the state returning board there was former Louisiana Governor James Madison Wells, a radical Republican who had been removed from office for allowing violent white supremacist rioters to have their way with the state in 1867. The Hayes camp figured that since Wells was a dyed-in-the-wool Republican, they should be able to trust him, but behind the scenes, he was working to sell off Louisiana's vote to the highest bidder. Most of the fraud on the Democratic side had been carried out on or before Election Day, But Tilden's side wasn't just sitting around waiting for the Republican-controlled boards to sweep Hayes into office. Instead, Tilden's nephew, William Pelton, was running around the contested state trying to bribe electors into turning his way. Wells was a Republican, sure, and supported Hayes. And that was why he hoped that his side would outbid Pelton. But if they didn't, well, that would be a shame. Let's get down to the suspenseful part. On December 6th, each state had to certify their election results and send them to Congress. The known totals, you'll recall, left Tilden with 184, one short of the necessary total, and Hayes with 165. Florida had four votes, Louisiana had eight, South Carolina had seven, and in Oregon, one more was in a bizarre sort of play. Altogether, that left 20, exactly enough that if Hayes carried them all, he would become president by a single electoral vote. You don't have to be a dedicated student of American history to know that Rutherford B. Hayes became president of the United States. We're living in the future, so there's no need to pretend at suspense about the result. It is in the process that the surprise lives. Since he became president, you might assume that the 20 votes in question went to him on December 6th. And you'd be half right. Each state—Florida, Louisiana, South Carolina, and oregon certified Hayes as the winner. But each of them also certified Tilden. Let me explain. In Florida, Republican Governor Marcellus Stearns sent off the certificate authorized by the Return Board saying Hayes was the winner. But Stearns had just lost re-election to Democrat George Franklin Drew. And even though he wasn't in office yet, Drew also sent off a certificate signed by himself and the state attorney general saying Tilden was victorious. In Louisiana, a similar thing happened. The governor's race there was being contested just like the presidential one, between Republican Stephen B. Packard, who certified Hayes as the winner, and Democrat Francis T. Nichols, who threw in for Tilden. In South Carolina, Democrats had nobody to stand up for them like that, so Tilden's electors in the state just sent off their own ballot uncertified with a letter saying that they should have won. Finally, in Oregon, Governor Grover removed the Republican John Watts as an elector and replaced him with Democrat C.A. Cronin, who cast his vote for Tilden. But Watts refused to recognize his dismissal and also cast the same vote for Hayes. So that's each and every one of the critical 20 electoral votes cast both for and against Rutherford B. Hayes. It's like the plot of a Three's Company episode. One rational way to resolve this paradox might have been to just go with the popular vote winner, a truly unheard of thing in American politics. That would have put Tilden in office with 50.9% of the vote and 200,000 more ballots than Hayes. But then again, the only reason Tilden had that edge was because of the several million black voters whom Democrats had managed to suppress. So that wouldn't exactly be a fair result either, would it? The only remedy was to turn to the Constitution and ask it what to do. What do you say, Connie? The President of the Senate shall, in the presence
1: of the Senate and the House of Representatives, open all the certificates, and the votes shall then be counted. The person having the greatest number of votes shall be president.
2: Okay, that's great. But what about if states send multiple certificates? How should we sort out which ones are valid? Connie? Connie? Nothing. Nada. Not zilch. Not a single solitary syllable, much less a clause, in the whole founding document offering any guidance whatsoever of what to do in this situation. Which means we got ourselves a bona fide, deep fried, pie in the sky, do or die, stick a needle in your eye, constitutional crisis. No map. No law. Not even any guidelines. There was nothing to say how the dilemma ought to be settled. Instead, there were mere arguments, which predictably fell along a partisan divide. The first argument was that the Constitution clearly meant that the president of the Senate should decide which returns to count. This was the side favored by Hayes, because the president of the Senate was Michigan Senator Thomas Ferry, himself a Republican. Other Republicans thought that that was maybe a little too extreme to pass muster, and offered as a compromise that the whole Senate should make the determination, as you might guess, Republicans controlled it. On the other hand, Democrats argued that the Constitution obviously provided that the combined House and Senate should take a vote. By coincidence, Democrats would have a majority of that vote. Each party dug in, ready for the long fight. But not all of their members were excited about it, The Republicans were split at the time into two groups, the moderates and radicals. Some moderates were privately of the mind that it would be better for Hayes to lose, as it would serve as a repudiation of the extremist ideas to their party's left. Ideas like black people should be defended from violence and allowed the full scope of citizenship. The Democrats had their own grumblers. Frankly, the Democrats were nothing but grumblers. They hadn't won the presidency since James Buchanan took office in 1856, so losing wasn't exactly a new sensation. Maybe, some Southern Democrats thought, there was something they could get from Republicans in exchange for the presidency. Something even more valuable. We'll get back to that. In an effort to break the stalemate, Congress agreed to create an electoral commission to decide which ballots to count. It would be comprised of five House reps, all Democrats, five senators, all Republicans, who would then choose four Supreme Court justices, two Democrats and two Republicans, who would then choose between them one final justice who they believed would be neutral. Everybody else came in knowing exactly what they were going to conclude. And those conclusions went right down the political line. 12 Republicans, 12 Democrats. In effect, the presidency came down to the opinion of one man. The fifth justice, David Davis. At a glance, David Davis might have seemed like a shoe-in vote for the Republicans. In 1860, he'd been campaign manager for Abraham Lincoln, and after Lincoln was assassinated, Davis oversaw his estate. He was, ostensibly, an Illinois liberal Republican. But since 1872, he'd registered as an independent, and was even nominated for president by the Labor Reform Convention, a house group of 40 or so delegates. His platform for the race didn't really fit either of the major parties, and he withdrew from the race when liberal Republicans failed to back him. Roy Morris Jr., who wrote one of the definitive accounts of the 1876 election, Fraud of the Century, wrote of Davis, No one, perhaps not even Davis himself, knew which presidential candidate he preferred. Hayes didn't much care for this state of affairs. He thought that pushing for Senator Ferry to just decide the thing on his lonesome was a much better position. Future President James Garfield, who was vociferously working to elect Hayes, called the commission the surrender of a certainty for an uncertainty. That was a little silly since said certainty was actually an intractable constitutional crisis, but whatever. You've only got four years before you get shot in the back anyway, so live it up, Garfield. Democrats were much happier with the deal and praised it. They didn't see much chance of winning before, but with the forming of the commission, there were now at least two paths for Tilden to take the presidency. Either they could convince David Davis on the merits, or they could bribe him. Along came William Pelton, Tilden's bottom-dealing nephew again. After having failed to buy the vote in Louisiana, Pelton now set out to buy the swing vote on the commission. He convinced the Democrats in Davis' home state of Illinois to vote him in as senator, believing that he would then repay the favor by throwing Tilden the presidency. Unfortunately for him, William Pelton was the wily coyote of underhanded election fraud. As soon as he succeeded in getting Davis the Senate seat, Davis had to resign from the Supreme Court and so was no longer able to sit on the commission. Instead, his place went to Associate Supreme Court Justice Joseph P. Bradley, a grant appointee and Republican. If nobody knew where Davis stood, everybody knew whom Bradley was for. Rutherford B. Hayes. After Bradley stepped up, the assumption was that the commission would go for Hayes, 8-7. In the first week of February, that assumption was supported when the commission met to decide on the first contested state, Florida. In spite of a Florida Supreme Court decision that had found Republicans at fault for election tampering and cleared the way for Democrats to take over the state government, the commission decided Florida, for Hayes, 8-7, on a strict party vote. Hayes and his supporters saw in the commission's first action a sign that he would soon be president. And Tilden did too. He began planning for his post-loss life, including a trip to Europe. The Democrats were in a corner now. The House members on the commission discussed delaying, derailing, or even leaving in protest. But they were the ones who had eagerly and loudly defended the commission in its run-up, and they couldn't think of a way to get past the hypocrisy of denouncing the very thing they'd worked to set up. Imagine, feeling constrained by their own hypocrisy. The past is a foreign country, isn't it? On February 16th, the commission decided the next state, Louisiana, again in Hayes' favor, and again on a party-line vote of 8-7. Hayes began working on his inauguration speech, nearly secure in his belief that the presidency was his. There were two states left to decide, however, South Carolina and Oregon. The Democratic cases in both of them were far weaker than they'd been in Florida and Louisiana, so the commission was looking like a dead end for them and Tilden. They only had one option left, the filibuster. The Democrats couldn't get Tilden elected, that seemed clear, but by filibustering in the House, they could at least stop Hayes from taking office. That was their last bargaining chip, and they intended to play it hard. Even before the Election Commission was established, a number of Democratic and Republican members and officials had been meeting in secret to try to work out a compromise beyond the formal avenues. Now that the Commission's outcome seemed well and truly foregone, those negotiations took on a new tenor. The Democrats were ready to filibuster, the Southern members were threatening violence, and Hayes' Republicans feared, quite rightly, that without some peacemaking, the presidency would be tainted as a corrupt and illegitimate office by many throughout the country. Ahead of the final March 2nd vote to presumably hand over South Carolina and Oregon to Hayes, the two parties forged a deal, which history creatively refers to as the Compromise of 1877. In 1865, the Confederacy had surrendered, and, after the ignominious presidency of Andrew Johnson, the South had spent eight years resembling an actual functioning democracy, giving some degree of freedom and franchise to black Americans only recently freed from the yoke of slavery. Ironically, with the election of the liberal Northern Republican Rutherford B. Hayes, all of that was set to end. In order to extract the promise from Southern Democrats that they would respect Hayes' victory and not filibuster or rebel, Northern Republicans offered a powerful list of concessions. First, Hayes would put a Southern Democrat, David M. Key of Tennessee, on his cabinet as postmaster general. Then, Hayes and Republicans would support the building of a second transcontinental railroad, this one through Texas and Republicans in Congress would support legislation to help rebuild and industrialize the former Confederacy. So far, so good. Finally, Hayes promised to remove all remaining federal troops from the South and cede home rule to all states below the Mason-Dixon. The United States would no longer interfere in the business of Louisiana, South Carolina, and Florida or anywhere else in the South. They would be left to Southern Democrats to rule. In exchange, Republicans asked for assurances from the South that they would respect the lives, liberty, and franchise of their black populations. One of those sides honored the agreement. Care to take a guess which one? On March 3rd, 1877, Rutherford B. Hayes was sworn in as the 19th President of the United States of America. The ceremony was held in secret, and Ulysses S. Grant had Washington, D.C. loaded to bear against the threat of Democratic sedition. Two days later, Hayes retook the oath in public, and his inaugural address gave his most famous quotation He serves his party best who serves his country best. Two weeks later, he had withdrawn all troops from South Carolina, Louisiana, and Florida. The Republican governor of South Carolina, Daniel H. Chamberlain, had barely been holding on to office since the winter. His Democratic rival, ex-Confederate Lieutenant General Wade Hampton III, had a sizable force of paramilitary white supremacists called the Red Shirts, who threatened violence so ably that Chamberlain's Republican government was only able to meet secretly behind closed doors with federal soldiers protecting them. Now those federal soldiers were gone and Chamberlain had no choice but to give up the governor's mansion, escape to New York, and let Hampton take control. Stephen B. Packard, Republican contestant for governor of Louisiana, also was left with no option but to flee the South after Hayes delivered on his part of the compromise, leaving Confederate Brigadier General Francis T. Nichols in charge of the Pelican State. Hayes told the public, as well as prominent African-American leader Frederick Douglass, that the rights and welfare of black Americans would be protected, and that, quote, "...the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments shall be sacredly observed and faithfully enforced." They were not. Hayes and the North abandoned the freedmen wholesale. Black officials and legislators were removed from office, sometimes peaceably, other times not. In their place, a government composed almost entirely of former Confederates rose up and struck out with a campaign of terror and inequity that stripped Southern blacks of virtually every right, especially the right to vote, which was functionally non-existent by 1903, whittled down by poll taxes and tests designed to do exactly and expressly what they did, oppress. Jim Crow laws flourished codifying racial segregation in public spaces from parks to theaters to restaurants to buses to water fountains to restrooms to elevators to schools to swimming pools to hospitals to cemeteries to jails to everything. At the Atlanta courthouse, two Bibles were kept so that whites would not have to lay their hand upon the same book to swear their truthfulness. Worse were the lynchings, which occurred with near impunity from shortly after Hayes took office until 1968. Even then, they only slowed, or took on other names and forms. For almost a century, the right to vote was legally assured and practically prohibited to most black Americans, especially those in the South. And at the same time, the almost entirely white electorate of the South voted as one continuous and contiguous bloc for Democrats. Those not at all coincidental facts, both not at all coincidentally reversed after 1964, when Democratic President Lyndon Johnson pushed and passed the Civil Rights Act, which outlawed discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin, and prohibited segregation, employment discrimination, and voter registration requirements aimed at disenfranchising minorities. After 90 years nearly the entire white South turned Republican virtually overnight. The point of telling this story, the point of learning this history, isn't to depress you or engender helplessness. The election of 1876 was a colossal, Greco-Roman clusterfuck. But the events that preceded and followed Devil Dan Sickles' late-night telegraph messages weren't the business of chance, or fate, or even the secret machinations of conspiratorial politicos meeting in smoke-filled rooms. Reconstruction failed. The self-professed redeemers who took over the South presided over an era of racial animus and oppression that in some ways rivaled the antebellum period. That wasn't fated power mongers and bigots chose to take control and refight the civil war at the ballot box and the white republicans who formed around the abolition of slavery who elected abraham lincoln who bled for emancipation and reunification who supposedly gave a shit about the fate and fortune of the 4 million black southerners they chose not to bother not to fight not to vote There was a brief and small window of opportunity in this country for America to overcome her unspeakable history of racial supremacy, suppression, and violence. And when it came down to it, less than half of white America decided they opposed that, while the majority of whites knew what was right and decided not to support it enough. We have the choice to not repeat that choice again. Music for today's episode by Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rosevere, Kevin McLeod, and me. I made two of those songs. <laughs> Aren't I special? A very special thanks go out to all the patrons who make this show possible, especially Matthew Levitt, Joy Verrier, Mike Thomas, Sue Koch, Deborah Thompson, and Jacob Grisham. If you'd like to join them, go to patreon.com theconstant or go to constantpodcast.com from there you can find the Patreon as well as our social media presences where you can follow the show. Please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen, especially Apple Podcasts. We're a proud part of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective which is celebrating the triumphant return of iconography with a new episode about the history of one of my favorite movies of all time, Jaws. You definitely Want to learn more about Jaws, don't you? So go listen, damn it. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, which in 1876 had its own electoral crisis when Thomas Hoyne ran and won a campaign for mayor, taking nearly every vote cast because there wasn't a mayoral election that year. This has been the constant. Please vote.